Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. And lastly, uh, what's your message to Boris Johnson? If he was here now, what would you say to him? Uh, I think the Prime Minister needs to go. And I, it's with great sadness and regret that I say that because I think Boris has achieved a lot in his time. I really do. Well, on that note, I think we should. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that, with regret, has lost confidence in the Prime Minister. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. No icebreakers this week because the ice has already been smashed to pieces by the news. <laughs> Joining me today to book the hearse for the Johnson Premiership, Ian Dunt, a columnist for The Eye and my co-host on Origin Story, which has just released its season finale. <laughs> like Boris Johnson. Hi, Ian. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. And our guest this week is a member of the Doyle for Dublin Rathdown and spokesperson on European affairs for Fina Gale. Neil Richmond, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This week on the show, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid have set off a bandwagon of resignations. We're trying to collect them all like Pokemon. Uh, I believe they're currently 31 as we record on Wednesday afternoon, but there will surely be more by the time you hear this. A delegation of ministers is apparently on its way as we speak. It's all over for Johnson, but when will he actually go? Plus, we speak to Neil about the ongoing drama of the Northern Ireland Protocol, Keir Starmer's pledge to make Brexit work, and the view from Ireland as the UK implodes. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Ofcom is considering making TV ad breaks longer. In a world where streaming is king, what do we miss about the golden age of advertising? It's been a wild week in politics, so we're releasing this week's podcast super early to everyone. Excitement like this is only possible because of our Patreon backers, so if you want to help us keep going then please do consider sending a few pounds our way. You'll get the regular podcast early without ads, plus merchandise, the Oh God, What Else uh, special podcast, and other regular extras. We've already outlasted one Prime Minister, possibly two, and you can help us outlast many more. Search Patreon Oh God, What Now podcast to find out more. First this week, it was Pinchy who did it in the end. <laughs> Boris Johnson denied that he was aware of a 2019 complaint against Chris Pincher, who resigned as deputy whip over sexual harassment allegations last week. A number of suckers and mugs were dispatched to say this to the media. <laughs> but according to former Foreign Office official Simon McDonnell, Johnson was briefed in person about Pincher when he was still a junior Foreign Office minister. Johnson now claims that he forgot, but has told some people that he thought the groping MP deserved a second chance to grope people. <laughs> this was the last straw for Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, who resigned on Tuesday afternoon with many more junior ministers following suit and even backbenchers popping up to say that they would resign if they had jobs to resign from. <laughs> the Times says it's game over for Johnson, while one loyal MP admits that the PM is totally fucked. There's no way out for him. It's over. Ian, I've had to rewrite this script a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not happy about it. Um... 
We will start, I suppose, with with what happened after PMQs and Sajid Javid's um, personal statement. Was this sort of pub band cover version of Jeffrey Howe's resignation the, the you know the most brutal thing that we could hope for? Oh fuck! I hope not because it was. I mean, I thought it was just completely rubbish. It got quite a lot of sort of you know fawning assessments on Twitter from people who are generally, you know, got their heads screwed on correctly. So yeah, I'm in a minority on this. I just thought it was it was very badly timed in numerous ways. I mean, firstly, badly timed in that he should have resigned fucking ages ago. And it's just embarrassing to have waited to this stage and inexplicable, really, on any functioning moral basis. But then also kind of weirdly too early to make the speech. Because what he made was he made a leadership speech, you know, as he always sort of does. And you think, well, now's not the fucking time to, to do that. He really, I, I didn't feel that there was any of the gravitas. The delivery was poor. It was very, very badly written. And in fact, weird, halfway through, I just thought he's actually helping Johnson right now because he's so demonstrably inadequate that it kind of shores up that Tory sense of, oh, shit, we don't have anyone to, to replace him to replace him with because he because it was just such a sort of rubbish tepid flaccid effort so no i didn't i didn't if if that's as stabby as the whole thing gets then we're all in a lot of trouble in her resignation letter justice minister victoria atkins we've all been following her work of course um cited patterson partygate and pincher johnson's collapse began with his idiotic decision to get behind owen patterson last autumn now it seems to be ending with a another case of misjudged support for a dodgy mp What's his problem? Why does he keep making the same mistake? <laughs> well, the honest truth is he just doesn't give a fuck, right? Like, it's no more complex than that. And I think that's what makes him ultimately such a strangely tedious figure, that there is no great strategy. There's really no sort of, no no great conspiracy. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. He doesn't care you know, if someone has accusations of, of sexual molestation. He doesn't care if someone makes a bit of money, you know, in a way that's fundamentally corrupt, given their responsibilities in Parliament. He doesn't care about breaking the... He just doesn't actually care and hasn't really been brought up with the consequences of his actions. So over and over, it's the same thing, which is he just he just doesn't care about it. And so there you see it. And I sort of think we, we deserve a better class of bastard. You know, we deserve someone that actually has something you know, elaborate or even sort of more functionally malevolent about what they're trying to achieve. And instead, what we get given is just this kind of like spoiled schoolboy. And that is why he's still sat there now. And that's why he committed all these original sins. And why is it a sex scandal and apparent cover up that seems to brought the whole Yenga Tower tumbling down? Was it, do you think Sunak and Javid and someone were just waiting for, you know, the next excuse to to act? Or was it, as Javid suggested, that, that you know, that the people were genuinely mortified, even people that you thought were not capable of such a feeling, <laughs> um, by having to do the media rounds and make claims from number 10 that were then reversed? Yeah, that's exactly it. You said the quiet bit out loud, right? Like, I don't, I don't, on a moral basis, I just think that, that they don't have a fucking leg to stand on. Like, it was clear from the first day, you know, when he was running for Tory leader or years before that, when it was clear that he wanted it, it was obvious what he was, that he didn't have the attention span to do the job properly, as he demonstrated in the Foreign Office, that he didn't have the moral standing to do it, that he didn't have the commitment to truth to do it. Like, that it was clear 
that this was not a man that should be near power. Then everything that happened while he was prime minister, from unlegally, from unlawfully proroguing parliament, to the lies, to the criminality, to the venality, to the complete lack of interest in what's going on in the country, to the complete decline, the bottoming out of the public services that you see, whoever you fucking speak to in any aspect of public services, just a complete lack of attention to it. It was obvious that this was not a man that should be near power. So for them to suddenly turn around and go, oh, but now I've realized, you know, it turns out actually that this guy wouldn't make a great prime minister. It's like, oh, come on, please pull another one. What happened, and they said the quiet bit out loud, is they watched Theresa Kofi sort of go like, like a lamb to the slaughter in the media rounds over the weekend and just have to say things that were obviously going to turn out to be false and look a complete mug for it. And each time that happens, they've all been brought up into it once or twice. They can tell, okay, so then it's going to keep on happening to me. And at that point, your professional calculation changes because it becomes more dangerous for you to stay in place than it does for you to go. Then they're presented with the fact that even after the party gate stuff quietens down, there's another scandal and another scandal and another scandal. And they can clearly tell they're not ever going to stop. It is always just going to keep on going because it is fundamental to his personality. And now my career stands a chance of being, you know, pretty significantly affected. My own standing will be reduced by virtue of it. That's what it's about, their own assessment of their standing, rather than any kind of moral recognition of what he is. Um, Naomi, talk your personal ambition. Um, Sunak is suddenly back as joint four to one favourite with Penny Mordaunt uh, for next PM. Um, Sajid Javid um, was putting his job application in the guise of a statement of principle. Um, <laughs> do you think they'll go up against each other? Could you see a combined um, ticket? Oh, that's a bloody good question. Um, I mean, they, they claimed that their resignations weren't coordinated or timed, you know, to align with one another. I find that pretty difficult to believe. Um, I don't think they can both go for the top job. So perhaps they've had their own version of a Granita moment. Sunak will appeal, of course, to the much more traditional Tory instinct of cutting spending, but I think despite what the bookies are saying today, his leadership ambitions are beyond repair. Right. I think the rueful part of his resignation letter where he said, I recognise this might be my last ministerial position was, you know, probably very insincere. He's obviously positioning himself for a return to government and any pretense that this is a principled resignation, as Ian has alluded to, is completely blown apart when you consider that these guys were happy to stay through, you know, Pretty Patel being found bullying but kept in post, the PP scandals, Patterson scandal, Partygate scandal, Barnard Castle's ruining the alliteration here, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> uh, there is no moral authority to have been had by these resignations they obviously both want the top job but they can't feasibly both go for it um and and expect to you know for one or other of them not to be knocked out so they've probably done some kind of deal with each other uh nazim zahawi is in at number 11 steve i'm doing the chart run steve barclay at health and michelle donnellan at education and if i were them i would only unpack the essentials at my desk um, <laughs> But Donlan in particular is not very well known at all. I mean, provide, I mean, I don't know how long they're going to be in post. But what should we what should we know about them? Well, I mean, Starmer made the excellent quip at PMQs, calling them the charge of the lightweight brigade. 
Um, and this cabinet really does have the final days of war vibes to it. Um, you know, they're handing rifles to the children, particularly when it comes to Barclay <laughs> at health. I mean, that he is in charge of hospitals and cancer treatment uh, should just terrify everybody. On Zahawi's appointment, the story is that he went on Tuesday to Downing Street demanding the Treasury job or he would walk uh, and that, that Johnson apparently wanted to give it to Truss. If that's true, it illustrates just how weak Johnson was even then, let alone now that he can be bullied into making that kind of appointment. And as we went on air, we heard that Zahawi was part of this men in grey suits brigade going into number 10 to tell Johnson to resign just, what, I mean, even 20 hours on from his uh, appointment as Chancellor. So quite what he was hoping to gain, you know, is some kind of mystery. He's either going to be out of the job very, very soon um, or he'll be in the post long enough for Johnson to denigrate and humiliate him as he does with absolutely everybody who he's close to. This whole podcast is just going to turn into some kind of weird historical artefact, isn't it? Because the, we're recording as the Liaison Committee speaks. In about 13 minutes our time, Boris Johnson's going to leave the Liaison Committee and go into number 10, where he's going to chat to the people that have been sent to tell him that it's time for him to fuck off. At the same time, it looks like the 1922 Committee are going to say that they're actually going to just straight up change the rules, as we knew they eventually would, and allow another vote that apparently is going to take place on Monday. So really, we're going to do... And, right- and that Johnson said he'll fight the vonk and if he doesn't win it he'll stand in a like what he'll call an election like he's just being trumpian he's super hinted i mean during the liaison committee he he pretty much said out loud that that was what he was going to do so i mean all of our analysis if you can call it that whereas it's really just gibbering euphoria is sort of going to fade the second we're done with it and what's going to be left is just our (laughs) real-time reaction (laughs) to the fact that this stuff is happening right this very (laughs) second but it's it's very strange because there were people on twitter doing the usual um thing of digging up old news stories about things that zahawi had done uh you know looking at they vote for you Mm. and mitchell donlan's voting record and i was a bit i was like you know lads don't waste your time (laughs) I don't stop assembling that Michelle Donnellan dossier because, uh, you know, you might not be using it. Neil, this is very much not your problem, but w- what on earth do you make of this as a, uh, as a, as a fascinated spectator? Problem it is that it kind of is my problem as well. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> this entire nonsense for the past six odd years has been my literal professional problem. <laughs> I'm an elected TD. I've got potholes to fill and babies to kiss. I don't need to be spending every free moment I have watching BBC Parliament wondering what a shower that I can never elect for or have the opportunity are going to do to make my life a misery tomorrow morning. And then I'm going to wake up in a week's time. There'll be a new prime minister, a new Brexit liaison. I'll stare down at BBC lens and sigh and say the same bloody thing I've been saying for the last six years, whilst everyone's saying like, well, the EU needs to be flexible now. We have a new PM and it's glorious i don't even know who's gonna be the new pm or who they're gonna throw in and um, best of luck to brandon lewis being a great sparring partner for the last couple of years but yeah like it's it's like watching that slow car crash that you just can't stop watching it and this is wednesday it's my busiest day of the week i really really could be doing without having to watch sky news we're having our lunch um in the bar, the members bar in Leinster House, which is kind of like a coffee bar. We weren't scooping pints. We're not like half the Conservative Party. 
and we were watching. And instead of having our own parliament on trying to follow where we should be for speaking time, we were watching British news because it's like, you know, deadline day for football transfers. We just need Jim White in a big yellow tie. Ah, next, the minister that no one's heard of is gone. And then we're all kind of Googling this minister and going, these are wild some of the stuff these guys got up to. And now they're elected. And the ticker's going in the corner, 27, 28, we're up to 32. And it's all going to be gone by tea time. But I did have one friend, and I feel sorry for him, last night when this all started, uh, he texted and he goes, like, no one wants an election. He'll, he'll cling on to Christmas. I'm very, very happy. I don't really gamble. And I just said, cool, bottle of wine on me um, or you. He'll be gone within a week. And I've already picked out a really nice bottle of Pinot Noir. So at least he'll have done that for me. <laughs> is, is there in your, uh, in your lifetime, is there a, an, an equivalent um, chaos day um, in Irish politics where you've just seen the wheels come off a government? Yeah, uh, and it was pretty spectacular. I wasn't involved in my party. So just after the financial crisis, so just before the 2011 general election, you had the scenario that the then Taoiseach, Prime Minister Brian Cowan, he had, like obviously we have coalition governments. Coalition are perfectly normal in Ireland and ultimately very sensible ways to do with our electoral system. So you had a coalition government of Fianna Fáil, who are back in government with us now, the sort of permanent party or government we don't really have that left right divide so we'll call them slightly to the left kind of populist centrist party the party of Eamon de Valera the vote against the treaty in with the greens uh, a small party called the progressive democrats who are really kind of really very liberal sort of free marketeers and a gaggle of independence and on this day you had the greens eventually pulled out of government after we had the IMF in bailout so six of the cabinet ministers who were retiring Anyway, they weren't going forward for the next election. They all resigned. So the Taoiseach's solution was to double up the jobs. So instead of having a cabinet, we have 15 in our cabinet. So rather than having a cabinet, you have a cabinet of maybe eight people, and they're all doing double jobs. So you've got people who are the minister for health for like four days um, and all this. So it's the only thing that came close. The preview, what happened six weeks later when we had a general election, is that party recorded its worst ever electoral um defeat and whilst they're back in government now they're very much you know one of the we now we don't have a big party in Ireland anymore we've three medium-sized parties so that was pretty spectacular um but it was kind of pre-social media it wasn't totally pre-social media we were still heavily invested in Facebook Twitter wasn't everywhere um you weren't getting that real time never mind 24-hour news cycle 24 seconds so-and-so's gone so-and-so's gone um, it's the only thing that comes close in real life. Um, there's definitely been a few fictional series that would make this look even crazier. As we're recording, um, Noah Hoffman's reporting the 22 committee have changed their rules officially. And Darren Jones, who's obviously sat in the liaison committee right now with Johnson, has just told Johnson that there are a group of cabinet ministers in Downing Street, including the chief whip, transport secretary, Grant Chaps. That's a new name to us uh, as we're recording this and the new chancellor waiting to tell you when you finish here today that it's time for you to go. This 1922 committee, that makes no sense to me. It's very existence. Like it's not the parliamentary party. It has no function. It's kind of parallel to government, parallel to the party structures. Like, is it? I know I get that I'm a complete outsider here, but from the complete outside, actually having that playing such an important role in British democracy, that in itself to me, get it, having to know who Sir Graham Brady is and how this committee works, 
I just, I still don't understand it. Um, Andrew uh, Harrison, uh, our major domo, has just appeared at the window with a piece of paper uh, with 34 written on it. (laughs) (laughs) High-tech resignation tally. I love that everybody else has to rely on the Sky News ticker, but you get... Like a, a human who's sort human of, with what, a piece of paper, on like like the oh, women yeah. for the rounds of a boxing match with a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> he was he did it. He was very sexy. Um, <laughs> Ian, resignation letters are an amazing genre because it's always like you're you're amazing, babes. What a wonderful time we've had together. But but sadly, fuck you. Um, <laughs> I liked Robert Halfons because it did actually mention poor, piss poor policy delivery as well as lies and scandals and embarrassing media interviews. Um, are any of these people, bearing in mind that we think they should all have resigned earlier, is anybody sort of coming out of it relatively well? Yeah, well, Craig Williams put what looks like a cock and balls at the bottom of his, <laughs> I think it was his signature, but honestly, it just looks like a cock and balls. Um, there's more, I mean, well, Hugh Merriman, I thought, did boss-level kind of resignation stuff by just sitting on the liaison committee. It's not really a resignation letter. It's just a sort of statement of, of no support. And then firing off from his phone the statement of no support in the letter on Twitter. And then turning around and asking the Prime Minister about transport questions, which I thought was good. My favourite, though, by far, was Jonathan Gullis, who you may remember, because he's always that guy that looks like a gibbering baboon during Prime Minister's questions, being extremely enthusiastic and aggressively supporting Johnson. And now, obviously, one of the first people to say that he was going to go as PPS. Uh, He wrote a letter that... I mean, had so many typos in it. I mean, it's worse than my tweets when I'm doing like a sort of 2 a.m. tweet thread on, on Parliament. So it was shockingly, shockingly bad and was was just the product of such a simple-minded brain that it was quite hard to get through it without feeling that your own mind was degraded in the process. I mean, at one point, there's a, there's a sentence in it, and this might be my favourite sentence of this era of resignations. He wrote... This is, you know, part of the didn't we do well bit. We got Brexit done and delivered a 17.6 million Kids Grove Towns deal, which will see the Kids Grove Sports Centre reopen. And you just think, yeah, he's really listing the big accomplishments of this government. <laughs> really summed them up in one sentence there. It was quite impressive. Don't forget that in Boris Johnson's political obituary. <laughs> so what is going on with intellectual heavyweights like Jonathan Gullis and, and Lee Anderson? Because they were, they were, they were, they were, they were Boris's Brexit boys. Why, why do you think they've they've jumped as well? And because I'm getting to the point where I'm wondering why anyone hasn't resigned or, or, or called for him to go. Yeah, I mean, because they think they're going to lose their seats. Uh, that's that's why that's why they're they're changing course. And also, I suppose there's, you know, that building. It's sort of designed for hysteria, really, because it, it's based on conversations in corners and murmurs and, and sort of plots. You know, the tea rooms and little rooms here and there. There's never any room outside of arguably the select committee rooms that are designed for people to meet together and cooperate. It's designed as a place of corners for for the whipping around of rumour and innuendo. And so it takes on at certain moments this sort of fever pitch demand, this kind of like this wave of need. Um, And that's what's happening in there right now and has been for the last sort of 24 hours. And I think that also, as well as the rational calculation, has an impact on them. I remember somebody once comparing days like this to when there would be like a bee in a school classroom and everybody would get very, very excited and run about and get all quite (laughs) very, very giddy 
mm-hmm. and out of control. I was going to ask you, Ian, about the two weeks to the summer recess, but now it seems like a geologically vast period of time. <laughs> so I'm not even going to talk about that. Um, Naomi, what strikes me is that this is a, and has been for a while, um, a dying government. No ideas, no direction, no credibility, a time of inflation, war and strikes. Um, And while uh, sort of Tory dysfunction is fun to watch, obviously this has consequences which could actually um, cost people's lives in various areas. Is it now a question of like the, the country is just not being governed? while Johnson yeah. was there. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, look, it wasn't being very well governed beforehand, but you've now got so many vacancies across government that there are many, many jobs unfilled and not being done, and these are important jobs. I mean, we, we may not know what the Solicitor General does. We may never have heard of it before the resignation yesterday, but it's an important role. And I think, you know, part of the problem is that, that this government is completely out of ideas, I mean, for all of us that want to see the Tories removed at the next election, it's probably in our interest for Johnson to stay because he is electoral anthrax. However, as we've been discussing, all the time the Tories spend tearing chunks out of each other is time not spent on the myriad of critical challenges facing the country. And so all true patriots, and not in the flag-waving way, but the wanting the best for the British people way, need him to leave immediately and we just can't stagger on like this for another two years but you know it looks like we're definitely not going to be staggering on with this idiot uh but probably with a new one yeah no me tory mp nick gibb makes a very good point that nothing johnson does now if he were to stay on longer than about half an hour um yeah. will be credible because everything will just seem like a bribe to to, to allies so he is sort of incapable of policy as anything other than a political ploy and I mean, you could be cynical and go, well, he always was. But that's not quite true, that he really is now just reduced to anything that will save him. But again, perhaps this is irrelevant. Perhaps he is gone. In office, but not in, in power is, you know, how we've been describing him for the last 24 hours. You know, and if indeed he was ever capable, because as we saw with levelling up, get Brexit done, et cetera, et cetera, they're just slogans and not serious policy. And that's been proven over the last three years. And Jesus it's been three years. It feels like a decade. Ian Johnson is hilariously unpopular. Um, as of this morning, um, when things were going relatively well for him, 69% of voters wanted him to go, including 54% of Tories. Um, the only thing that he can point to, and boy does he point to it, um, is helping Ukraine, uh, which he brings up in a rather unseemly fashion. And yet when he was, apparently when he was told this morning that people were going to come and tell him to go, he went, fuck that. What is keeping him there? beyond pride because a normal person would think if you were in a job where basically most of the people who work for you wanted you to go and actually millions of other people uh, outside of you in a circle yeah that direct circle also wanted you to go and you could not achieve anything more then you, I would resign as I'm sure would you well I mean you say this but you know we've tried with you several times and none of, none of our gray men knocking at the door has had the least <laughs> impact <laughs> I just didn't hear them. I'm sorry. (laughs) So I continue to press on with delivering the hosting of this podcast. (laughs) But I mean, we taught, I mean, that one of the kind of, I suppose, debunked psychological theories was that Johnson really just wanted it as a sort of feather in his cap and would would seek an excuse to to get out early. And in fact, he's in full downfall bunker mode. Yeah, they never do that, right? Like, do you remember people said the same thing about Trump? 
Oh, he won't mm. want it when he's there. Okay. But it's just basically something I think liberals say to make them feel better about the fact that there's fucking four years of horror staring them in the face. So like, no, no, he, people that want power typically want power. You know what I mean? Like they don't leave it unless they really have to. It's just ego. Again, it's such a boring answer, but it's the true one. He is just pure, undiluted, rampant ego combined with a massive dose of entitlement. And that is what he is. And I think the danger now I mean, I'm just sort of, as we're talking, I'm sort of half flicking between, you know, the Twitter to see what's being said in the liaison committee, where he's being asked over and over again, will you step down if there's a vote of no confidence, if they ask you to do so? And he's just not answering the question. Now, I think ultimately, ultimately, surely he will think I have to do that. I mean, I, I believe if Cummings was still in number 10, I think they would they would go for that election option. You know, they would go for the just burn it all to the fucking ground option. And let's just see what we can do here. But I don't I don't think he's got I don't think he's got it in him to see that through. I think he's going to step back from the brink. But I could be wrong. Well, he's he's also said that he would if he did it, he would deselect any of the MPs that have yeah. no confidence to him or is <laughs> What the, so what, he actually wouldn't have any food of it. Well, you can't, you can't, what's he going to, who's he going to put in? Like shop dummies. <laughs> he, he probably would. They just get a little row of mannequins with Brexit written on them. People wearing maybe Dory's masks. Uh, resignations uh, now up. Andrew is back with his piece of paper. It now says 35. <laughs> um Now, Neil has had to step out for a few minutes uh, to do important democratic business in the Doyle. Um, He's been called to a vote. Uh, So I'm just going to have to ask you guys, when do we think, and this question may be temporarily irrelevant um, by the time people hear it, when do we think he will go? Uh, I mean, uh, this is a horrible question because it's going to be outdated as soon as I've said anything. Um, As I understand it, he's He's making his way back to number 10 now where those men in grey suits are waiting for him. So it could be by 6pm this evening. It's currently five past five as we're recording this. Uh, but more than likely, he'll probably sleep on it and go tomorrow, I'd imagine. What do you think, Ian? No, I, I think that's realistic. I do think that's realistic. I just can't see him really putting this down to the sort of nuclear option. And I don't... I, I think that's realistic. If you had to put money on something, you'd go with that. I don't think we should. I don't think we should stop this without recognizing how satisfying and how enjoyable the, the process is, and why. Right, like looking at him in that liaison that liaison committee meeting was the bits the the first hour and a half before we started recording was poetically so full of justice. Because before they address this stuff, they just go over the whole policy platform, defense, public services, health, transport, education. And in each one of them, he didn't know a fucking thing that was going on in that policy brief. He's just talking to people who are going, what about this? What about this? How about that? And he just doesn't know. He doesn't have any grasp of the detail. So it was almost like before it ends for him, you're just taken on this whirlwind tour of the entire portfolio of your policy failures. And then, you know, in the back end, when they start to bring up standards, there's these questions that happens to be on the pincher case. It could be on any number of things that he's just in the end sat there and his lies come to nothing. All he's got is, I forgot. I forgot I was told about this. And that's why I said repeatedly that it definitely didn't happen. 
And he just looks, he tries the bluster, he tries all the guff, he tries his usual techniques, and they just fall dead in that room. And what he is, right then and there, is just completely and utterly exposed for what he is. After the years of watching him triumph on the basis of his bullshit, it is profoundly satisfying to finally see him come to nothing like this. Um, breaking from Beth Rigby, I'm told Pretty Patel is part of the number 10 delegation. Oh, fucking hell! Oh, my God! She does love telling people to leave. <laughs> Have you had it in your back pocket for the last three years? No, you, no. no that, that, was, that, was, that was new material. Now let's turn to a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week it's from Andy Tilda. Of Andy Burnham's ideas on how to fix our democracy, the one that stood out to me was replacing the House of Lords with an American-style Senate. Of the two models, the Lords seems a lot more functional as they are less worried about the party line. If you could reform or replace the House of Lords, what would you do and why? Now I like the framing of this question. Um, because you look at the kind of insane partisanship of um, the American system, you know, where even like, you know, sheriffs are elected. Rather than this being a wonderful celebration of democracy, it it turns everything into a partisan bust up. So, yeah, uh, Naomi, how would what would be your kind of ideal version of the House of Lords? Well, advocates of an appointed Lord sometimes confuse procedural and political effectiveness. Um, And so although the turnout for votes in the Lords is often poor, um, and we saw that with a few really key amendments in the last parliament on things like the policing bill and the elections bill, where peers who were in favour of the amendments and making the bills less bad couldn't be bothered staying till 10pm for the vote and peeled off. Um, The House of Lords usually spends more time than the Commons considering legislation, which is great because they don't have constituencies to go back to, etc. But it isn't very functional when it really matters um, and it keeps blinking first in any kind of conflict with the government. Um, uh, And so I think it's partly a consequence of the elected dictatorships we often get in the UK, Um, Because, among other things, most prime ministers can stuff the Lords with their own appointments if the Lords get pushy. And the Lords is therefore often, sadly, a talking shop and too often very deferential to the government of the day. So doesn't work well as a revising chamber, but I think could be much more effective with its own democratic mandate. So appointing the Lords. I mean, there are there are big problems with appointing the Lords, of course. Ian, what would be your ideal? I mean, house? sort of the opposite, really. So I would, I would not have it elected. Um, I once upon a time, I used to be a sort of forty-nine percent uh, sort of elected kind of guy, like a hybrid house guy. But increasingly, I just think no. I just think in point appointments only. It, it. You, what, I mean, lots of the things that work about it um, are not to do with the fact of this. It's to do with the fact that it controls its own timetable when the Commons doesn't. And the people have experience of other matters, you know, by the time that they come in to be peers. But the fact that it's non I mean, the last thing, just the, the, I would not even bother with Lord's reform, not because it doesn't need it. It does need, you can't have the hereditaries and the, and the bishops, it's a fucking nonsense. But because the commons is so much more fucked than the Lords that I just, it would be at the bottom of, of my list for what you need to look at. But if you were looking at it, 
I would have it appointed and I would have it appointed by elections within institutions. So scientific institutions, you know, chartered surveyors, medical bodies. If you're going to have religious people there, then I suppose, you know, within sort of church organizations, although I'd be averse to that. Um, and actually, so to that way, to, to really have it truly, as it fulfills this function now, but to improve that function as a house of experts would be, would be the way that I, I would go. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the Lord's thing is not what I find most interesting about Andy Burnham's ideas. I think he, I think he's much more interesting on uh, devolution, the power of mayors, of which he is one. Um, and I think, I think that that's that seems to me something that seems very um, exciting and relatively new um, compared to this rather sort of age-old question of the Lords. I look at British politics, and I don't think that that is the uh, that is the biggest problem. By the way, um, we're, it now turns out, or it sounds like, the 1922 committee has not undecided, has met and has decided not to change the rules to what? allow a second no-confidence vote. So it sounds like that that report was not accurate. And instead, they're going to hold the executive elections on Monday in the afternoon. That delays things quite a bit if Johnson doesn't listen to the to the grey suits that he's talking to right now. I mean, it gives him, I mean, Monday, that's quite a, I mean, like you're saying right now, that's tectonic plates like period of time, you know, five days is a lot, especially for all the noise to suddenly die down. Cause it really felt like. Oh, the queen feverish. will probably die or something. And then it will be all better. <laughs> Michelle Donnellan, uh, who we know so much about is part of the delegation as well. So I just love the idea of giving someone a job and then they come and tell you yeah. to leave your job. <laughs> I think that's just, that's amazing management. <laughs> Next up, I regret to inform our listeners that we will not be rejoining the European Union in the immediate future. <laughs> At a presser on Monday, former shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer outlined Labour's Brexit plan, which include not rejoining the single market or customs union, but somehow making Brexit better. Naomi, broadly, what did he say? What is Labour's tasty new recipe for the shit sandwich? <laughs> Well, the headlines were, as you said, no single market, no customs union, no freedom of movement. Basically, what he was announcing was characteristically cautious baby steps, you know, kind of common sense changes to the Brexit deal that only Brexit extremists are dead against. Um, So it includes a lot of the things that... um, Best of Britain's UK Trade and Business Commission has been calling for. So things like simpler visas, a veterinary agreement that will remove red tape for businesses and help reduce checks uh, on goods at borders. Um, But when you consider the scale of the economic challenge facing Britain, he will need to move faster on undoing the damage of Brexit. And it's just a question of if he has the political space to do so. People, I suppose, will be wondering why make this speech now and who is it for? I wonder whether, along with ruling out a deal with the SNP, is it just that he's working his way through all the possible Tory attack lines in case yeah. of a snap general election? And, and, and that really is the sole explanation for this speech. Yeah, look, it appears to be all about deflecting difficult answer yes or no Keir Starmer questions in the general Mm. election it's removing those Tory attack lines of can you answer yes or no will you rejoin the single market so to avoid the potential difficulty of that they've decided to to get ahead of it 
um, and that they have to, you know, either declare that they definitely will rejoin or definitely won't to defuse the attacks. And they've decided that ruling it out is the safest thing to do to defeat the Conservatives. I suspect the Lib Dems uh, will take the other view, in which case it's very, very important now that Labour and Lib Dems don't start to attack each other on this difference. The only beneficiary of that, of course, is going to be the Conservatives, as was the case in 2019. So the speech was very much for the Red Wall, for those former Labour voting people who voted for Brexit and then Conservatives in 2019. But the danger is, I think, that this is working you know, on 2019 assumptions and poll after poll show that people don't like Brexit. They certainly don't think it's been good for the economy. They don't like the impact that it's having on jobs, on prices, on travel. And so I think someone might be running the risk here that he's looking a bit like he's fighting the last campaign rather than the next one. Ian, as Naomi says, um, obviously Brexit is polling very badly. But what stood out for me is that according to YouGov, only 20% think that it's a priority for the country at all. Is Starmer's position a reflection of, of that kind of polling, that actually most people are not thinking about it? What he's trying not to do is get people thinking and talking about it in a way that can hurt Labour. Because obviously nobody listening to this podcast is delighted by what he's saying. Is it the sort of politically the the best option, the only option for him? Yeah, it is. I don't see what else he can possibly do. If we had electoral reform, this would not be the issue and we wouldn't be forced into this position, but we don't, so we are. And for him to get those seats back and actually to, to a certain sort of extent, the same thing kind of could apply to the Lib Dems with the seats that they're targeting, you need for at least one election the Brexit issue to fade away. If it goes back into that cemented tribe where, you know, the, the Remain side is split and the Brexit side is united, is monopolised by the Conservatives, then we'll get a similar result. And we need that not to happen. You need to just put it in the rearview mirror. That's the political calculation. And it's, it, is, it is simply correct. It is not objectively true by virtue of what the country needs or by virtue of the things that are impacting us. But from his perspective, that is the thing. That if you don't have Scotland, you do need to get back some of those seats in the Red Wall as, as well as fucking some others. You have to have that something that puts it in the, the rear view mirror. Now, he's done that. You know, he's done it in a speech just simply repeating what he's already said. So I find it hard to get upset all over again. I don't like seeing his office, you know, send these briefings to... You know, they do, and they're briefing going on, this is for the Ramonas, so they get the picture, and you're just like, for fuck's sake, mate, you don't need to just go down this road, and it's very irritating you doing that. But but as a tactic, you understand it. It's nothing new that's not being said. And on the more optimistic sense, you would say, maybe this gives him then the, the avenue, the opening, to talk about the stuff that is going wrong. It's entirely in keeping, by the way. I mean, when we were sat around, you know, after the 2019 election, you know, none of us were thinking, oh, we're going to we're going to fight, you know, we're going to get back into the EU at the next election. It was always the earliest this can be done is the election mm. after next. You need to have Labour there in power, rationalising the relationship, getting rid of the Europhobia, getting the EU to trust you as, as a partner that won't break their word, wanting to work together. And then after that, you can push for the thing that you really want. So, I mean, all of this fits the timeline. It fits in every single way. It just sucks to hear it. And I get it that, that it sucks to hear it. But I can't see any other way it would work. But I also don't think that it's tactically that great because these are such 
anodyne proposals. And when I say that the UK Trade and Business Commission have put them forward, we've put them forward for the government, the Conservative Vote Leave government, because they are so easy, low-hanging fruit things for them to do. You know, most of it doesn't even need to involve any negotiation with, with Brussels at all. That surely a new Conservative leader will just snaffle these ideas, implement them and give Labour even less to talk about at a general election. I don't think that the list is necessarily the sum total of what they can offer in government. It's just what they're putting forward now when really they just sort of want the Brexit thing to to go away. And like you said, to, to have answers to those questions. What I suppose troubles me a bit is the lack of a vision in any sense. And this is really the problem that you have with him politically throughout, that he's good at spotting the incoming attacks and neutralizing them. And that's what he's done here. And I think you have to do it. It, it is the right thing to do. And thank God he is doing it because the last leader wasn't capable of it. What, what there isn't in anything that you look at with Labour is, is a vision. And it would have been nice to hear him talk about what is the vision of the relationship with Europe that you would have now, even in these more limited terms. And we didn't hear that. But, but on the basis of it themselves, I, I can't say that I would have come up with anything too different from it if I had been in his position. It's, it's funny, I was thinking today that you have to put in a good word for Starmer here that we have been, we often say like, where's the vision? Where's it? Where's your big policies? You know, he is ahead on all, he and Labour are ahead on all four of the major metrics which lead to an election win. That we've gone from Labour is out of power for a decade yeah. to it is very likely that he will be the next Prime Minister and even if tactical voting falls in the right places could have a majority. It's it's sort of extraordinary that what he's done, if you went back to December 2019, when we were on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre feeling very glum, and you said, I'm from the future, this is what's happening, <laughs> without even getting to the whole Johnson, you know, all the resignations uh, thing, and just when this is the position Labour is in, it would like, it would have blown my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and yet he manages to have done this remarkable thing while still being kind of uninspiring. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, Neil, Starmer claims that he can negotiate better deals with the EU because they will see him as an honest broker. Now, honestly, the bar for honest broker is very low with Johnson. I mean, would you agree that he could to, he he would be able to do a bit of a reset there? I think there's degrees of reset. I think we have to be realistic. The EU isn't going to reopen the protocol, but where the EU has kind of offered opportunities or olive branches to make the protocol work better, like that's where that's the turn that Keir Starmer needs to make. And I, I do like the way he referred to a veterinary deal with the EU. This is the most obvious thing to mitigate the checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. An SPS veterinary agreement could remove the need for 85% of checks overnight. Eminently sensible. Only the most hardcore Brexiteer, race to the bottom person, doesn't want an SPS agreement. The standards of the EU are were largely set by previous British ministers when the UK were in the EU. They're high for a reason. The speech in itself was, from my point of view, very meh. Like, it wasn't a bad speech. He made it in the Irish embassy. The Irish government have a good relationship with Sir Keir. He, he does have a good understanding of Ireland due to his previous career, obviously, in Northern Ireland. And he'd be well respected. Um, as a passionate pro-European, I was underwhelmed. <laughs> I was there like, you know, where is that and it may not be electorally sensible, where, where is that voice in the UK screaming, going, why can't we just go, where's the 48%? Or maybe even a little bit more percent? Where are those people going like, 
Brexit is a disaster. It's never going to be good. Why can't someone just make the sensible proposal that the UK tries to get back into the EU and try and convince the rest of the EU that the UK is worth having back in? And people, I, I'm shocked when people mock me when I say, I really want the UK back in the EU. The EU is a better place when the UK was inside it. They were a great ally of Ireland's within the EU. And people go like, oh, you'd never have us back or we've burnt all our bridges. British people haven't burnt their bridges. Boris Johnson's lighting a good few matches. You know, like David Davis, Dominic Rabb, I can list the amount of people who, who just love having a pop. But overall, going forward, if we could have any British government, Labour, Tory, coalition, whatever it is, who'd actually just meet the terms of the international treaty they agreed with the EU, it's all we ask for. It's a re- really, really basic, not even a hurdle. It's not even that little ledge when you're walking into a new room. Um, not data rail. Skirting board. It's not even the skirting board to get, over, <laughs> to get into it. Um, it's fairly basic, but instead we have... Like I, I hate to have come so cynical because I'm not naturally cynical, but the cynical idea of, you know what, things are getting a little bit choppy. Let's talk about Article 16. No, no, let's go one further. Let's legislate to break international law and blame it on European intransigence. So anyone who can come along and say, you know what, we have a treaty. We're going to keep the treaty. We're going to meet the terms. We're going to try our best to negotiate better elements so it works better for the people of Northern Ireland. That's a breath of really fresh air to me on this muggy day in Dublin. And what do you think is, is going to happen to this bill regarding rewriting the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, I mean, do you see that as something that the Tories are going to be wedded to even even post-Johnson? And is that something that, that, that Ireland is you know, bracing for? No, and you would have seen the European Union's re- reaction to this was relatively laid back, but decidedly pissed off. In that, in the British cabinet, who is absolutely wedded to this beyond the foreign secretary, who's using this as her big gambit to somehow become the next leader of the Conservative Party. And even the prime minister, you know, there's no big deal. But it is a really big deal. And the flippancy that this is discussed about by the British government is what really made a lot of people quite angry. But from a European point of view, we said, right, we've seen the legislative threats before. We've seen all the nonsense about indicative votes and, you know, we've been told that we respect the will of the British people based on general election results and whatever else. And, you know, alternative arrangements, unicorns and throw it in all together. But ultimately, we kind of know the British British legislative system. OK, ram this through uh, the House of Commons, but it's really probably going to get stuck in the House of Lords for 12 months. And the end game, the achieve, what this bill proposes to achieve, coaxing the DUP back into the executive, they haven't even warmly you know, full-throatedly supported this. They've welcomed it, but there's no guarantee that they'll go in. There's no guarantee they'll do anything. Um, It's not going to resolve the situation overnight for businesses in Northern Ireland. And it was a ridiculous proposal, to be honest, in the first place, that has achieved nothing bar put the British government in the sort of category of international lawbreakers, annoy all their near neighbours, particularly... Like, I, I don't think that Brexiteers appreciate that the Irish government are the UK's best friends within the EU. We want a really good deal. We want a close deal. We're not completely reliant on the UK as we once were, but we kind of get the importance of it. We've adjusted. We don't send goods through the Lambridge anymore. They're all going direct ferry from Wexford to France or wherever. But we get the importance of it. And we have distinct interests in the 800,000 Irish citizens who have made their home in Great Britain not um, not having their rights diminished or their opportunities. So just like we took the, op- took the 
fairly difficult decision in terms of it was unprecedented to actually go out and campaign during the Brexit referendum. We have to have a vested interest in this absolutely ridiculous legislation that I hope whatever happens in the next 24 minutes, 24 hours, whatever it's going to be, disappears loudly into the night and I don't have to worry about it again. Neil, Roy Stewart and David Gork and others have made sort of no uh, hiding of of the fact that if there was PR in the UK electoral system, they would have set up a pro-European centre-right party by now. Fine Gael is an internationalist centre-right party that has managed electoral success recently when other centre-right parties uh, have lost their minds and swung towards authoritarianism and culture wars. Other than having a much better, more fair democratic voting system in Ireland, what's Fine Gael's secret? I know we got a kick in at the last election, so I better not offer too much advice. <laughs> <laughs> I was but you're not, you're not mad. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, like... I don't know. This obsession with culture wars is just daft. Like, if someone is gay, let them be gay. Like, what are you going to achieve politically not allowing two men marry? Why do you have to make life misery for a teenager who is in the process of realising that they're a man in a woman's body? Like, life's hard enough when you're a 15-year-old without having that on your shoulders. I don't get this obsession with constantly looking to be offended by something. You know, and this comes from parties of the centre to centre right going on like, you know, lads, you're the snowflakes now. (laughs) Let's just try and work things through The people aren't coming from abroad to steal your jobs. You know, they're really, really good. We have lots of difficulties in our country. I don't pretend like we don't. But I think it's not losing yourself in. And I think it does actually come down to the electoral system. Like, I love British politics, but it is quite removed from the people I have found compared to. Certainly Irish politics, where you vote for the individual as much as the party. The notion that I wouldn't go back to my constituency every night because I'm a Dublin TD, let alone uh, four days of the week where there's British MPs who just spend their time in London. And then you get caught in all these issues in the bubble. And it happens in Brussels, it happens in London. This, you know, I feel that half the debates and discussions aren't tied to real life. You know, they're just something that has been a constant, um, either internally in a political party in Westminster, different wings and all that. And I just find that they're at a removed. So I think certainly from my party, yeah, look, we've had a few tough elections, but we're still in government. And I think it's that desire to compromise, be open. We're in with a centre to centre left party in Fianna Fáil and the Greens, great bunch of lads, very happy to have government with them. And I think it's that ability. People need to be flexible. It's based on compromise. You don't have to hate the people that you're facing in the chamber. You have to work with them. Well, uh, we, we stepped away from Boris Johnson for a moment there. But at this point in the recording, we've heard from Oscar, one of his closest fads. I've never heard of him. Uh, just said, thanks to everyone and left. Lots of tears in the press office, writing on the wall now. The working assumption is that it will be today. And that is the show. Thank you so much to Naomi. Thank you. Ian. Thank you very much. This has been tremendously enjoyable. If we can just make all of them exactly like this, it'll be great. <laughs> Uh, Anna and our guest in this very special week, Neil Richmond. Thanks for having me. I hope I haven't ruined Anglo-Irish relations. <laughs>
Our theme tune is Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You'll hear it in just a moment, along with our thanks to our latest Patreon backers. It's a huge thank you from me to Celia Cave, Graham, Keith Withers, Mary Broad, Barcodius Shenley, Spice the Cat, Carol White, Oliver White, Thomas Warbrick, and Michael Zolisi. And it's hello and thanks from me to Andy McLeod, Alistair MacArthur, Gary Hill, William, Laura XK, Joe Bishop, Danny Barker, Chris Braganza, and John Crowley. And thanks to me from the following people who are all joining the delegation of cabinet ministers <laughs> going to Downing Street, Andrew Morley, Tony Lloyd, Harry Thorpe, Simon Shuttleworth, Jin Williams, Peter Hannon, Helen Pickering, Adrian Marsh, David Williams, and Richard Brent. See you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunn. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofrinovich, and me, Alex Reese. Saying this very quickly in case Boris Johnson quits before I finish editing this. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Uh, This week, to combat the power of streaming services, Ofcom is considering increasing the number and length of adverts on television. It comes amid reports that Netflix may also start including adverts on the service, but how many of them are worth watching? Ian, we will start with the good stuff. Which which adverts, because the the advertising terrain has changed a great deal, which ones do you remember fondly that you would not, had you had the technology to skip through them, skip through them? I mean, not really fondly. I don't, I mean, I don't, that just seems like a fucking diabolical thing to say that you would ever be fond, because is it even possible to be fond of an advert? Of course it is. I can't. Okay, I can't think of any. I mean, all the ones. I'm, I'm, a, really I'm like a ninety. I'm like a ninety nineties guy. So I remember actively enjoying the kind of the black current tango. Although I now see that this le- directly led to Brexit. <laughs> the uh, the one on the the one on the white cliffs of Dover, where he's shouting at a French kid. Um, but it was very funny at the time. Or like the black and white Guinness surfing horses left yeah. field. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember just, an, just like I remember the. What was it like, Papa Nicole? Oh, I was going to say that one. Yeah, that was weirdly incestuous, Renault Clio. It was all creepy as fuck. And the flake one where she has an orgasm in the bath. And, Dairy you know, Milk Gorilla, drumming Phil Collins. Yeah, no. I don't, but I don't, it's not like, but I don't feel warmly about it. Just like, yes, no. I mean, I, I recognize that they did something effective because we still remember them fucking like three decades later, but like, but I don't feel warmly. You know how Brexit ruins everything. I did used to feel warmly about those BT ones with Maureen Lippman. He's got an ology. Do you remember those ones? Love those <laughs> ones. But now she's a bit like, yeah, Brexity, Johnson-y. <laughs> I don't feel warm about them anymore. That was the trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, and other goodies. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 